0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Before My Time, this week, you're joined by our producer and friend, Matt Kelly, and myself, Gelsey Laurie, to talk about the 80th anniversary of Casablanca.
1: We're here to you. We'll sing your songs for good times, the best times. You can't go wrong. We'll two step, a new step, it won't
0: be long. When the lands are playing, soon you'll be swaying. So come on, sing along.
1: So Gelsey, I don't even remember if there's an anniversary coming up with Casablanca or if we just really wanted to talk about this. You uh no, you had sent me this one.
0: There is an anniversary, because uh, November twenty sixth, Casablanca premiered in nineteen
1: forty two. Ooh, okay. So we're do the math. What's this eighty years?
0: Yeah, because I have this magazine here that says seventy five years later. And I wanna say a friend gave it to me five years ago. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I my quick math on that was that we're in twenty and you said (laughs) forty.
0: Yeah, no.
1: (laughs) This is not a math podcast, as as listeners have very quickly figured out a minute into this discussion. (laughs) Numbers—they're
0: hard. My brain just went blank. I was like, "Well, forty-two, and we're in twenty-two, so it must be some even-sounding number."
1: Let me ask. Let me start with this question for you because the great debate. And I don't even know if this is a debate anymore, but obviously when I was in high school and college, this movie and Citizen Kane were basically just flipping back and forth for like what was the greatest movie of all time on like multiple lists. And I'm curious where you land on that debate.
0: I don't want to this. I need this to be said off air. Matt, I've never seen Citizen Kane.
1: Oh, well, we'll get to an episode of it one of these days. We will. I'll watch it. And
0: I know it's one of those ones that's like a classic that I just haven't gotten to. So I'll pick Casablanca because...
1: Yeah, well, Casablanca is my vote on it, too, to be honest. I think that from an importance level, it goes to Citizen Kane because Citizen Kane and obviously we'll eventually do an episode on this and we'll dive deeper into it, but Citizen Kane is one of those movies that you watch all of the films that came before it and then you watch that and what it did for like camera angles and like mm-hmm. the way that they make movies. It is the most important. It's it's what the Beatles are to music. You know what I mean? You listen mm-hmm. to the music that existed before the Beatles and then realize like, oh, the, the experimentation that they did that created how like modern music is performed and recorded is like, a direct line into the Beatles mm-hmm. in importance. But I actually think Casablanca is the more enjoyable watch. Casablanca just it's, oh, for it's me, so good. well, it hits, it hits, it's a, a perfect romance story. Like it hits mm-hmm. all of the, the beats that make any person who's even slightly open to the idea of love, just absolutely swoon for the story that you're involved in. It hits the comedic beats 100% of the time when it's swinging for it. It hits great dramatic moments throughout the entire thing. It has amazing music in it. Oh, um so and it's and it's so it's just such a large scale sweeping thing. And then you find out that essentially they were like writing it as they were filming it. Like it was They
0: were. Yeah, it's <laughs> like, crazy. And that's I mean, um Ingrid Bergman, who we'll go back, she plays um Elsa, not not let it go, Elsa. Um <laughs> She she said that n- no one knew where the picture was going. We were shooting off the cuff. Every day they were handing out dialogue and we were trying to make sense of it. As they were shooting it, they like, didn't know how the film was going to end. And so because of that also, they shot the film in chronological order, which is very, if not rare, ever done. You like Because normally yeah. it would be, say, Rick's Cafe. They would take every single – they make a schedule of every single scene in Rick's Cafe and you shoot that all back to back and then – the hotel whatever their location sets are um, it's definitely
1: never done in in mainstream hollywood filmmaking for nah, sure like yeah that's like you'll find like small, small indie films um one of the, one of the books that i have lloyd kaufman who maybe one day we'll do an episode on lloyd uh lloyd kaufman who runs troma pictures which is the world's oldest independent film studio they've been around since the late 70s and and still going um but he put out a book called make your own damn movie <laughs> and in that book his suggestion is to shoot chronologically, but his reasoning, which is insane, is this way: if an actor's holding up the set, you like holding up your filming, you can always kill his character off and just keep moving without having to like reshoot a bunch of footage.
0: Yeah, you know he doesn't have a he doesn't have a bad. I mean, I think like, the bigger films that have like multiple locations, obviously, that's an insane way to shoot because it, it doesn't make sense. But the amount of times a lot of films have lost money because they have to go back and reshoot things for whatever reasons.
1: Yeah, if you're doing like a small independent film, you don't have the finances to be like, oh, we've got to reshoot this movie because this actor's not working. Right, yeah. You just have to be quick. (laughs) How many times do you think you've watched Casablanca in your life?
0: You know what? Not that much. I found Casablanca much later in my life, like just a few years ago.
1: I think I'm close to 50 times. Wow. I've seen this a lot.
0: It's about to (laughs) get there for me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I think this will be one that I just kind of put on in the background a it's lot It's a now. great
1: background movie. It
0: really is. Even though it's mainly just kind of the intense dialogue that you have to listen to, in a weird way, it is a great um, background movie. And I think it's just the actors. Um, obviously, we got Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, who are incredible in this. And they both, I mean, Humphrey Bogart had just became a star before this with... Um, Maltese Falcon. Yeah. And so he wasn't, you know, it was this anyways, between their dialogue and their speaking voices and then the music like you were talking about is it just makes for the perfect film. And speaking of uh music, well I'll just go straight to it because it was a great interlude. Um the song As Time Goes By, which obviously kind of I think this made it popular and it makes the film it kind of gets written in this that It was originally written by Herman Hupfield in 1931 for the Broadway musical Everybody's Welcome. And this song was included in the original play. Casablanca was a play first called Everybody Goes to Ricks. Um, And the film composer Max Steiner, he wanted to change the song. So they had already filmed the movie and he was like, I want to change that. And he wanted to write an original and slot that in because he wanted the chance for potential royalties and a potential Oscar win, which get Max... Calm down. like
1: Yeah. Joe will get plenty of Oscars for this damn movie. And he, did. he didn't he's, need an I think original he's song.
0: <laughs> he's won 24 Oscars in his life and it's fine. But then um, the producer actually agreed and he started writing a new song. But since they were already done shooting it, all the scenes with Time Goes By had already had been shot with Ingrid and she had already moved on to the next picture and she cut her hair for the next film she was filming. So they couldn't bring her back and reshoot with the new song. So they were like, oh, we're stuck with it. So instead Steiner um, geniusly wrote in the melody into the score that he did and kind of just intertwined it. But he told his wife um, that he thinks it's the lousiest tune, which I oh, disagree he's an idiot with you, then. Mr. Steiner. It you, is I it is a gorgeous disagree.
1: song. Oh my it's God, beautiful. it's so pretty. And, and yeah, you get those, especially when you have those moments where you have like, I mean, I'm, I'm a man who loves a sweeping score for sure. Okay. So like when you're just sitting there and you do just hear that melody line in the score, you're just like, God, it's so fucking pretty. Like It
0: is. And I love when composers do that. I love when there is a mainstream song or older song or whatever, one that the composer did not do. But then they take that and write it into the score and kind of little. I, I think that's a beautiful uh, what do you want to call it? Inter- tw- whatever, marriage, uh, my words are gone, but it- it's awesome. <laughs> there <laughs> well, we go. This is,
1: but this is also a movie where, you know, it's, it's a cliche to say this at this point, but I think it is true nonetheless. Like, this is a prime example of a movie where, like, the music is a character. Like, the mm-hmm. music is, and I'm not just talking about the score. I'm not talking about as time goes by. Like, music plays a pivotal role like a a litmus test of so many scenes. You know what I mean? Like I think of mm-hmm. the scene where literally it's like the Nazis and, and the people against the Nazis singing songs towards each other in the bar. Yeah, like well, that there was are these really huge... powerful musical moments.
0: Yeah. yeah, that's one of the most iconic scenes in the film. And um, the, the German officers, I'm going to butcher this because I don't read German, surprise, yeah. um, but what? they begin to sing... Take that and off I, your resume. I know. I've been lying <laughs> along with all my other things in life. Just fake it till you make it. Um, they've Actually, I can say one thing in German, and it's, eins Glühwein mit Amaretto, danke. And then they say, bitte, and I go choose. And that's basically me ordering one mulled wine with a shot of Amaretto in it and then saying, thank you. And then they say, you're welcome. I and we say, Bye. <laughs>
1: I think that's the cutest German has ever sounded to my ears. (laughs) Normally, German German is such an aggressive language in my mind. That's
0: what I thought too. And then I spent five months in Germany with a show and I was like, I love German. Um, It's if you have the right. I love
1: German so much. I only want to learn how to order drinks.
0: It It was the only thing I needed to know while I was there. It was during the holiday season where the Christmas markets and they have Glühwein, which is mulled wine, and you get. That And walk around because it's cold out, so you have your hot wine. And then it's awesome to add a shot of amaretto. Anyone that's going to Germany or Amsterdam also has the Christmas markets. I highly recommend it. So just order eins Glühwein mit amaretto, danke. And there you go. You're welcome. So anyways, they begin to sing the song Die Wacht am Rhein. I'm so sorry if I've, I'm butchering it. But so they sing that. And then Victor Laszlo, who is Elsa's husband... We kind of didn't do a plot thing, but whatever. Just I'm expecting that all the listeners have seen Casablanca. If not, go watch it right now and then come back to this. Um, But Victor Laszlo is on the run from the Nazis. They're after him and he's kind of a a forefront uh, resistance fighter, if you will. So he leads the bar in La Marseille, which is the rendition of the French national anthem. To kind of counter the Germans, he gets the nod from Rick that, yeah, it's okay. The band leader gets the nod. So the band joins in and then the whole bar joins in and overpowers the German singing. And it is this, you know, beautiful moment of the people together overpowering. And no matter, you know, they people are getting killed, obviously, left and right. And it's just that staying true to what they believe in, their country. And it's it's beautiful. And then another, uh, back to Max Steiner, composed also kind of fractured in that tune into the score as well, that um, the La Marseille Marseille's I think that's how you say that as well. I don't speak French either. Um, they the original song they wanted for the Germans though was oh, again Horst Wessel Leid, um, but that was under international copyrights in non allied countries. Because remember, this film came out in 1942, we were in the midst of World War Two mm-hmm. when Casablanca which, was filmed, written, and, and released,
1: which is very easy to forget about, right? Because you just think. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, it's an old movie, so...
0: <laughs> no, this is very relevant. Well, and speaking of this this scene, so um, I just want to backtrack a little bit. So this this was a play, I think I said goes to Rick. Um, the play was called Everybody Comes to Rick's. Um, I just want to make sure I said that right. And it was written by Murray Burnett and Joan Allison, and it was an unproduced stage play, so it never hit the stage, but Warner Brothers story editor Irene Diamond convinced producer Halby Wallace to purchase the playwright. Um playwrights and made it in so they wrote this scene in this was in the play and and playwright murray burnett said that when he sat at his typewriter um and wrote this scene he said and the tears rolled down my face and when it was filmed many of the extras in this scene um who were european refugees cried as well dan seymour who played the doorman in the scene said it hit home everyone was crying so you know this was a really emotional scene for a lot of people because It literally was going on and and a lot of these people were European refugees and had families still in Europe and so it was just this overwhelming scene to to shoot and it's beautiful. And I love Yvonne, played by Madeleine LeBieux. She's the French actress who um, appears as Rick's soon-to-be-discarded girlfriend and that close-up of her singing when they're all singing, they get really in. She's only nineteen when they filmed this, which I think was crazy. She's also stunning, by the way. The minute she walks on film, I'm just like, "Oh, who's this woman?" Uh, she also was the last surviving member of the cast at age ninety three. She passed away in two thousand sixteen. She was the last man standing. I will beat you, Madeline. Ten years of that ninety three years old, but <laughs> <laughs> just I gotta keep putting it out there. Um, but I, I love, I love the close up of her singing that when they when they do that, and it's such an amazing. Scene and such an iconic scene. Going back though to kind of the writing of it and so it's we know it was bought it was a play and it, the writing of the script the reason I think that it wasn't finished when they shot it and they were kind of doing it as they went along is there were more than one writers writing the screenplay and it was kind of handed off. Um, brothers Julius and Philip G. Epstein were initially assigned to write the script however despite studio resistance they left To work on Frank Capra's Why We Fight series early in 1942. Then Howard Koch was assigned to the screenplay until Epstein's returned. The Epstein's returned a month later. So multiple people were writing it and it was kind of ping ponged back and forth due to that. And so that kind of is a reason why it wasn't finished. And they were like, how is this? ah." Um, The,
1: The fact that that's how this movie was getting made and like not only does it have, I would say, at least
0: five iconic scenes. It's got so many iconic quotes. Well, that's like, a, I was telling my sister today who she was like, I literally don't give a shit because she does not, she thinks I'm so weird, but uh, she's never seen Casablanca. I was telling her all this stuff and I was like, oh my gosh, it's just, I don't think I've ever watched a movie that has so many iconic lines. And everyone I said to her, she's like, I've never heard that. And that's how she, she idiot, never but, heard like, She heard some of them, but I said, you know, it's the the ending scene of, you know, Lewis. I I believe this is the beginning of Beautiful Friendship. The
1: Hill of Beans line. uh,
0: That's But that ending was actually supposed to be... They debated a different ending, and that's because when they made this film in real life, the... So the movie concludes with Casablanca still under Nazi control when this happens but on November 8th in real life 1942 um, with Operation Torch allied troops invaded French North America liberating Casablanca two days later so the film was about to be released and they were like shit should we redo the film and they considered it ending with Rick and Lewis hearing the news of the invasion but the rival studio executive David O. Selznick Told Jack Warner he'd be crazy to change what was the perfect ending, which is a hundred percent true. And they the film was supposed to, I believe, actually be released a year later than 42, but after this um Casablanca was in real life liberated. They saw this as a good PR moment where they're like, "We yeah. need to." They push the moment, uh, the movie through production quicker to get it out like within two months, so it could kind of be in ties with actually what was happening in the war and this movie. Which smart play, boys? Smart no, one hundred percent. Can we talk
1: about? I mean, there's there's so much to talk about, and I don't think we could do it justice in a single episode. And it's definitely mm-hmm. one of those things where. If you're someone who for whatever reason has not seen Casablanca, aka Gelsey's sister, there's so much that works in this movie. And I think the part that hits me more and more every time I watch it is just the journey of Rick. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like Rick is this extremely neutral person who's actively trying to you know, it's kind of like leave me out of it leave me alone is kind of his mindset like he's he's there to profit but like his bar is seen as a very safe neutral ground for anybody to come in and drink and he achieves that by never getting involved with anything mm-hmm. but then you start to see a little bit behind the curtain it's like oh but Rick does try to hook people up with ways to get out of this area and you start to see the more that Elsa's back into his life the more that neutrality starts to crumble because he, for the first time since she left him, starts to see that it's bigger than just his perspective on himself. He stops being this selfish profiteering person and sees the bigger picture. And well, it's and just think, such a beautiful transformation. Yeah, it's a very like Scrooge that. type story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, it is.
0: And I think I think the part of that is not just like a selfish, it is selfish how how he was. It's he's cold and he's playing that part because he's been heartbroken by Elsa he's so you know when you see the flashbacks of Paris who he was then from when we first are introduced to him in Casablanca at his place it's it's not just that he's in it for himself it's it's once he's left at that train station that's where everything changes where he doesn't care because it's he loses belief hope any of that He, he he almost has this you know people are bad and everyone's out for themselves kind of a outlook because he was left at the train station and Elsa did not come and and he's heartbroken so it's that and I think when she's there it he just can't help but those emotions coming back down and I think the scene when she goes to get the letters and pulls out the gun is one of my favorite scenes of that you know, she's just there to do anything to get that. But when she just crumbles and it's just, I love you. And you just feel that, oh, I I think that might be one of my favorite scenes.
1: I mean, honestly, as much as I love Humphrey Bogart in this movie, I really think the scene stealer is Claude Rains um, as like the one Nazi soldier who seems to very much enjoy <laughs> Rick's company. He has so many good, quick lines and quotes throughout Um Probably the hardest I've left every time I've watched this movie is uh when he shuts he's shutting down Rick's and says, and Rick asks, Why are you closing me up on what grounds? And he goes, gambling. I am shocked, shocked to find out that there's gambling here, and then someone just pops up and goes, You're winning, sir. And he goes, Oh, thank you very much. Yeah. All right, everybody out. <laughs> like, he's so skeezy. Like he's a guy who's basically if you were I'm going to use a sitcom comparison, but like he is essentially like a Barney Stinson Joey type character where it's like he is using his power. To get laid by women who desperately want to get the, their loved ones out of the country by like, oh, mm-hmm. come out with me for an <clears> evening and I'll get you the pass that you need to like yeah, escape from here.
0: Which the censors went after the movie. So they, they had the film Marty in the can and the censors went after them for um, both suggesting illicit, illicit lovemaking between Rick and Elsa in Paris and also between Captain Renault and the refugees that needed help. So they did soften that for the release. Um, they, I think they had a little more shown in the original cut, but we, we get what's going on. Yeah. The censors did not like that one, but it is true. Yeah. And it's, uh, I don't know. I I think I like, I think that's why it, his dynamic and Rick's is so great, but it's kind of when it ends, you know, and it is going to be the start of a beautiful friendship. They, they kind of work perfectly together
1: yeah well does you say at one point towards the very end rick is like i have this gun aimed at your heart and he says that's my least valuable possession <laughs> like, like there is some very snippy fun dialogue in this movie which i think if you were to just look at the poster and base it on what you know about the movie you wouldn't think that it's funny but it's mm-hmm. a really funny like it has really funny dialogue and and quippiness to it along with all the other stuff that i said the romance and the drama and and it's it is just a beautifully made movie across the board with so many nuanced characters. Like Peter oh, Lorne yeah. even is in here for a little bit, which is like great to see him pop up and stuff. Well, place.
0: and I love, I mean, a, a smaller role, but one that's such a key element going back to as time goes by is Julie um, Wilson, who played Sam. Yes. I, I marked that because I thought he was amazing. And he actually wasn't a pianist in real life. He's a drummer. And he didn't know how to oh. play the piano. <laughs> Yeah, so I was like, well, that's convenient. Um, But he was already in his 50s when he started filming that. um, And before that, he was so unhappy with the work he'd been getting. He was about to quit acting right before he got this role, which is one of the most iconic roles, which I feel like you hear that a lot in Hollywood. I feel like a lot of success stories, people are like, I was going for this is my last audition and then I'm quitting. And that's their like huge breakthrough role. I'm pretty sure that's
1: uh, Alexis in Schitt's Creek, right? Yes, yes. I'm sure I've heard that she was like, if I don't get this, I'm just going back home.
0: Yeah, (laughs) that was. And now it's like, God, no. Now look at you. Um, I'm so proud of her.
1: Yeah, But there are, like, the performances throughout this movie, one of the lines that always hits me um, is right after Elsa comes back into Rick's life, right? Mm -hmm. And she asks to hear as time goes by play it sam and it's all dark inside the bar and everything's closed up and rick asks for it and sam's kind of like resistant to the request and he kind of like not screaming but definitely with some anger is like if she can stand it i can like like it's almost it's not even it's almost like he's punishing himself just like
0: well i think so i think I think there's a lot of inhuman nature. I think I specifically say when people go through heartbreak. I think there's some self, not sabotage, but self-inflicting pain that we enjoy when we're heartbroken. I think we like to indulge in the tears, indulge in the, you know, I think that's why it's fun. I recently, nothing huge, but was seeing someone and there was like a week where, after that i would put on like the angry breakup music and i was like oh i I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this yeah feeling no, the song feeling the feelings and i was like i and so it just there is a i think in human nature it's like we like to reopen some pain or feel that
1: 100% and i, I yeah. think something comparable is um off the air you and i were talking a little bit about grief And Mm -hmm. I feel like the thing that I hate about grief is that grief can sometimes be a very numbing emotion. And I would take anger or sadness over numbness a thousand Mm. times. You know what I mean? Like, because because there is, like you said, there is something where it's like, hey, this sucks, but I get it. You know what I mean? Like, I'm feeling something. I'm feeling some motivation, like it feels good to cry sometimes. It feels good to be angry sometimes. And I
0: have a theory that I think anger is easier to feel than sadness or it's, it's easier to tap into that and it feels sometimes better. And so I think angry people are actually just deep down sad and hurt. That's most of the time it's like, what happened when you were five years old? Whether it be like a childhood hurt, sadness, scared, that then is masked as anger or heartbroken it's easier to instead of just sit and go this sucks and i'm hurting it's easier to go fuck him blah, 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 i'm better without yeah. him He's that you know and like going to like that kind of a mentality um i think if you're sad you're not necessarily angry but i think if you're angry you deep down are actually hurt and sad
1: yeah no that makes sense yeah. i'm trying to think if there's any so i do want to call out because yes uh, as time goes by gorgeous song beautiful song so happy it's there it had to be you pops up in this as well a little bit mm-hmm. beautiful but you know that Matt Kelly who loves some jolly songs loved the shit out of just the performance of Knock on Wood that pops up which is the I love oh I know <laughs> you yeah. know what's
0: funny is I was watching this the other day again just to like refresh and stuff and I was sitting on my couch and I every time was knocking on my head when they yeah. all knocked. like I was like you can't knock along yeah yeah <laughs> I do. I kind of. That's what I love about the movies of the time is that they will throw in a song that just doesn't progress the plot. Kind of. They're like, we need just a little cheery thirty seconds worth of, and they'll just they'll just put it in. Yeah. Going over to this has uh, no transition into this, but I just wanted to point out a couple truth versus fiction as far as the movie. What would have been realistic and what wouldn't have. So, I'll start with the letters of transit, quote unquote, which allowed the travel through Nazi occupied countries, um, was made up by Joan Allison. They would not – that doesn't exist in real life. And they are considered a MacGuffin, which was a term used by Alfred Hitchcock for an object that serves as a trigger for a movie plot. That also yeah. um, kind of on that same line, Laszlo claims that the Nazis won't arrest him in Casablanca because it's still unoccupied France. I wrote, nope, <laughs> that's that wouldn't happen. That doesn't mean anything. He, I don't think, you know, it, Not, I don't think it's true. He wouldn't have been necessarily safe there. Then also the fact that Casablanca is an exit point um, was not realistic and not likely. The more popular exit points would have been Vienna, Prague, Paris, and London. Um, But the director, Michael Curtis, who was a Hungarian-born immigrant, he was well known for his English kind of being broken up and this, that, but he kind of got called on the plot points not making sense. And uh, he wasn't concerned. He said, don't worry, it was logical. I make it go so fast, no one notices. So that's a little <laughs> bit of his English kind of, I make it go faster. But I, I kind of like, I read that and I was like, yeah, it's true. He made it go fast and I didn't really bother the plot <laughs> the
1: holes. He, he did make it go fast. I didn't notice the plot holes. But also, so one other thing, and this is the last thing I can think of that I want to call out. But like, I think that Casablanca specifically does such a great job especially for the time period because I don't think that this is something you can say about a lot of films from the 30s and 40s it feels like such a full world right like so many films of this time period you kind of just get introduced to the main players of the film and Mm -hmm. maybe one or two locations but like you get introduced to so many different characters throughout the runtime of this movie, and even if they're only in the movie for a five-minute scene or a ten-minute mm-hmm. scene, you've they don't feel like they're just like an exposition machine. Like like when you're looking at that character, Peter Laurie is a perfect example. Like his character shows up and brings so much to the table, but like without them having to establish how much history is between him and Rick, you just know that there is, you know, like you through their interactions, you know, like this isn't the first time these two people have spoken and they are going to talk more and more and more up until when one of them is no longer uh, available Mm -hmm. for conversations Mm -hmm. anymore. And I think that that's really cool because, you know, even like something that we love, like some like it hot, right? Like I Mm -hmm. love some like it hot, but a lot of a lot of the girls in that movie that aren't Merlin Monroe, Jack Lennon, or Walter Matthau literally just feel like set dressing. Like yes. they're just kind of there to fill in the space. But I feel like every character that you meet in Casablanca has an impact. Whether they yeah, whether they serve a point to the plot or not, you can tell that they have an impact on the world that the movie takes place.
0: <laughs> a hundred percent. I I completely agree. Um, and I think that's why it makes it so what it is is that just every everything has weight everything has impact everything adds to the emotional ride and feel of it instead of like you said just set dressing um something interesting about bogart on this though he he wasn't very comfortable filming this in general he wasn't good he he's not comfortable with romantic scenes he doesn't like shooting them which ironically, because he's then, the
1: detective normally. Yeah. Like, yeah. He's hardboiled and, detective.
0: Yeah. And he does it, And so he even said there's a quote. Um, he's talking about some past work, how he knows how to do that. And that. But on that, and he says, but this well, this leaves me a little baffled. I'm not up on this love stuff and don't know just what to do. And his friend gave him advice, um, Mel Baker, and he told him this is the first time you've ever played the romantic lead. You stand still and always make her come to you. The director probably won't notice it. And if she complains, you can tell her it's tactic in the script. You've got something she wants, so she has to come to you. And that became advice that he took to heart and played that kind of romance of that power in, in the rest of his career is, is how he played a lot of that romance. And it works for him. It's just the whole Bogart thing worked. And um, it, it's interesting. I On set, supposedly, Bogart and Ingrid never seemed terribly comfortable with each other. It... Well, to start, this is a fun little fact. He had to wear lifts in his shoes. Actually, there's a picture of his shoes taped on to big wooden platform blocks that he wore with scenes with her because she was two inches taller than him. Because she's a tall Swedish woman. Beautiful. Which side note, do you know who the hell her daughter is? I just found this out and I was like, how did I not know this? No, who? Isabella Rosalini.
1: Oh my God, I think <gasps> I did know that. Yeah, that's right. I, d- I was
0: like, oh my gosh. And then as I was doing that, and I was watching clips of Ingrid Bergman in other movies and this, that, I was watching this like small thing on her. I was like, oh my gosh, I can see it. You can hear it. You can. Anyways, side note. If no one knows who Isabella Rosalini is, um, famous model actress, but she was in Death Becomes Her as the woman that has the potion. So. Bogart's wife at the time, because he'd he been married quite a few times, uh, Lauren Bacall was his last wife and that was supposedly the love of his life, even though she was 25 years younger. But his wife at the time, Mayo Metha, was infamous for her jealousy and insecurity and her heavy drinking problem. And by this point, they had been married for almost four years. But she was so convinced that Bogart was having an affair with Ingrid Bergman that she started showing up on the set daily, which just added to like the kind of craziness. This woman sounds crazy. I'm glad you divorced her, Bogie. But um, (laughs) it was said, yeah, that they Ingrid and Bogart didn't seem too comfortable together and that, you know, there was no cozy rehearsals or tight clinches um, that the pair kept. But the – sorry, Humphrey Bogart's publicist, Bob Williams – was quoted saying, I think Bogart was in love with Ingrid. I have a feeling he was kind of smitten with her. And Bogart was quoted to say, when the camera moves in on that Bergman face, it would make anyone feel romantic. So after kind of reading that all together, I was like, I bet he was just madly in love with her. And so to counter that kind of kept that extreme distance that they didn't seem to have something or, you know, because on camera it shows, it comes through a thousand percent.
1: Well, and there's there's so much that works in those performances. And I think all of those things are factors in it because it also, I th- this movie captures a thing that I think happens more often than we talk about, which is the idea of like, you are with someone, you fall madly in love with them. Maybe they're even your first love. Right. Mm-hmm. And then for one reason or another, it doesn't work out. You break up, someone cheats on some, whatever you go your separate ways. And then years later you reconnect. And it's like all those old emotions are still there and it's exciting. But like deep down, both of you know that it's just not going to happen. It's not going to be a thing. And I, I think that that's what makes that final speech that he gives at the end of the movie, all the more powerful is that not only is he sacrificing what could be his happiness for the greater good. But I think deep down, he knows like this wouldn't ultimately, this wouldn't work like this Mm -hmm. ultimately wouldn't work. Like this is the person you need to be with. This is the right guy for you. And, and you're the motivation for this guy. Who's going to change the, the fucking war based on this. And if you go away, you will devastate this guy. And that's what, also makes this movie so compelling is that the guy that Elsa's with that she comes in here is a perfect person. Mm-hmm. There's nothing about him that makes you go, "Oh, you shouldn't be with him. You should be with Rick." Like you, as the audience, knows this guy is such a good dude.
0: Yeah, <laughs> and loves her, and the, yeah, and and that's <laughs> one of the my that scene you were talking about when he's like, you, "We know this won't work." Is uh, I love the quote when he's maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but soon and for the rest of your life about regretting the decision to stay in Casablanca. Yeah, and I I love that. It is in the original play. It's a little different that um, Rick, Rick and Paris and all of that. Um, well, she, originally Elsa was an American named Lewis Meredith in the play, but then once Ingrid, Ingrid Bergman got cast, they changed her to Elsa to change her nationality and whatnot. But they Laszlo and Lewis don't meet until after Paris, so she's not married as she is in the film. And they changed that just for the movie, which it's, it's like understandable, but it's like a little fucked up that she's having this full (laughs) romance. And I'm like, your husband literally just died in your mind in a concentration camp and you're drinking champagne. You know what? That's like escapism to the max. Supposedly the, the director filming also was a little stressful though, because the director and Bogart fought like crazy, on set about (laughs) the line readings the number of takes that they needed how the romance should be played the rekindling of Elsa and them it's they never and sometimes they they needed a couple hours to resolve their discrepancies yeah but you want to hear some fun little facts about the movie of course I do this might be my favorite fact it's a little messed up it's a little uh spinal tappy but the plane in the final scene which was shot at the Van Nuys Airport, was a small model build. It's still large, but it was not full-scale plane size. And so all the extras in that scene are little people to make the plane look bigger. I was like, oh my god, they actually did that. They actually pulled a spinal tap. Yeah. (laughs) Holy shit. Yeah. I did say the ending might have been different, but even the line, aside from the ending of them hearing about the revolution in, in Casablanca or, or whatever. But um, the original line was, Louis. I might have known you'd mix up your patriotism with a little larceny. And it was producer Hal Wallace who came up with the last line that was better. And it is a great, perfect last line. And um, so there was... A lot of there was a scene being shot uh, again when I said several of the extras and actors in the cast were from Europe. It was actually a hev- much more of a heavily European cast than um, American. Bogart was one of the only Americans on it, but when they uh, when they were filming a flashback scene in Paris and they were talking about how the Germans would soon storm Paris, there was a female extra who burst out into loud sobs, and they had to retake it. And then another extra walked over to the director and apologized and said, I'm very sorry, sir, but that is my wife. Please pardon her. You see, our home was in Paris and we were there through our, uh, we went through that awful day. And it mm-hmm. again is just kind of reiterates that this is currently going on as they're filming this. And, and it was very emotional. And again, it's people experienced it or still had family um, over in Europe. And, and gosh, it just even puts in more of that weight. Another line that was going to be uh, different, which was now one of the most famous lines, here's looking at you, kid, um, was supposed to be, here's good luck to you in the Parisian scenes. But the phrase was changed when Eddie Cantor in 1932 used it when he signed his name in cement at the Grauman's Chinese Theater. And he wrote, here's looking at you, Sid, in reference to the theater's owner, Sid Grauman. And so that was kind of used as, here's looking at you, kid. Which yeah. I I think that is the most endearing line. I have this thing. It's funny. I was just talking to my sister about this today. And um, side note, like on a personal level, we were talking about dating and this, that. And I said, I always tend to, I don't know why my listeners need to know this, TMI, but I tend to go for older and this dynamic of this person knows more, this person is more well, whatever it is. And it's that comforting for, for me. And so when I've had in the past, people call me kind of, kid before and i i go crazy for it i don't know i love it i it's i don't know what childhood i've got to sit lay down on a couch for this one (laughs) i don't have daddy issues (laughs) i don't know and so it's in this film specifically that line to me is so swoon worthy no i agree with i i
1: i do find my another tmi but no i've definitely I have like lovingly referred to people as kid who are definitely well into their 20s and 30s, but mm-hmm. sometimes they're the same age as me. I don't know. I think it's a it's a nice little just term of endearment, whether it's romantic I, or just yeah. friendly. I, I just, I don't know. I I like calling someone kid.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like, I think it, I, I just think it's like, oh, uh, it gets me every time. So any eligible suitors listening to this, you know uh, what to say when you find me at a bar. Yeah. Uh- <laughs> What bar am I going to? Get over yourself, gals. Some of the artifacts, artifacts, set pieces and design went for some pretty crazy prices. So the piano, Dooley Wilson's piano, sold for $3.4 million. Jesus. I know. I, and the... Um, It was promoted with a tagline of, how can anything say I love you better than the piano from Casablanca? And I read (laughs) that and I laughed and I go, it's true. If someone was like, I love you and here's how I'm going to show you. Here's the piano from, I'd be like, oh, you love me. And I'm not much of a, (laughs) you need to show me money for love kind of a thing. But that's pretty epic, whoever got that piano. (laughs) (laughs) But one of the chairs sold from Rick sold for $5,000. The door cafes sold for $115,000 one of the screen doors $25,000 yeah oh the original script so Hal Wallace's daughter sold the producer's heavily annotated working script for the film which included blue typed pages added at the end of the script title changes in new ending that sold for $68,750,000 um did I just say thousand twice I read that weird you get it um so yeah this shit went for a lot (laughs) The car, the Buick Phaeton convertible using the final scene went for $461,000. Who has these things? If someone knows where they are, I want to see them. (laughs) (laughs) AKA, I'm going to plan a heist and I'm going to steal it. I want to live in Rick's Cafe. Someone actually finally opened a real one. Probably way later than they should have. Yeah, 60 years later. And it looks awesome and I want to go. Where's it at? I think it's in casablanca
1: (laughs) oh like it's actually in casablanca yeah i
0: I was i I was thinking i was like where is it and then i was kind of reading through and i was like oh i think it's actually in
1: oh i'm surprised that there aren't like just themed rick restaurants you know what i mean like i
0: was gonna say i'll open one but i definitely won't Won't. because that (laughs) is the highest failing business so anyone that has a successful bar restaurant i really salute you because you're not supposed to make it
1: now then take it and reconvert it into Rick's so that we can go visit it sometime and do a photo shoot in there or something.
0: Yeah, it's it's in Casablanca. Nice.
1: Okay, so that's that's extra cool that it's actually in Casablanca.
0: Oh god, no, I have to go to Casablanca. That same suitor that is gonna come and call me kid that happens to be the same owner of the three point four million dollar piano. Please take me to Casablanca <laughs> so I can go to the real Rick's. Thank you. This is
1: the episode where we kinda talk about Casablanca, but more so build out Gelsey's dream guy. <laughs> Hey, do you have an idea for a podcast but don't know where to start? Or do you have an already existing podcast that you want to take to the next level? Well, check out WeKnowPodcasting.com. From concept development to theme music to editing to logos, WeKnowPodcasting.com is a one-stop shop for all things pod. Don't hesitate to hit us up. We're very nice. Gelsey, I was thinking about what the perfect outro conversation would be for this one, and I think I've got it. Okay. Do you have a favorite Casablanca parody moment from a movie or TV show?
0: I thought you were gonna ask if I have a favorite outfit that Ingrid Bergman wore, and it's yes, it's the outfit. Well, that if she you wears want to answer that
1: question, that's fine. With too. the
0: striped top and the white V over it and the big white hat, I had to pause the movie this last time just to really take it in. So that's my favorite outfit she wears. Um, do I have a favorite parody look?
1: I mean, that is a beautiful, that is a beautiful outfit for the listener. She is straight up showing me a magazine <laughs> picture of the outfit. I really love that <laughs> outfit. I'm
0: like, maybe the Muppets. Oh, we got the Muppets in. Yeah. The well, Muppets wait, 1981. I, Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog reenact the final scene of the classic film in The Muppets Go to the, the Movies, a one hour TV oh. special. Or Carrot Blanca. Carrot Blanca. <laughs> The 1995 Looney Tunes
1: short. Does that say Gilmore Girls underneath? <laughs> yeah. Sure enough, it does. She's holding up the magazine again, folks. Um, it's
0: it shows all of the references in pop culture of Casablanca.
1: The the one that jumps to my mind, which is so stupid, is Naked Gun 22 and a Half. The whatever the second Naked Gun's official movie title is, I know it's called The Smell of Fear, mm-hmm. um, but there's a scene where it's. Leslie Nielsen's character, Frank Drebin, seeing uh Priscilla Presley's character for the first time since the last movie, and they're sitting in like an old bar, and there's a guy that looks exactly like Sam sitting behind the piano. And uh, you know, he says, Sam, play our song. And he goes, Whatever you say, boss. And then in a very loud, high pitched voice, he just goes, Ding! Which just <laughs> <other is> like, <laughs> And it's you love so like stupid but
0: so funny. <laughs> alright, alright. That's it's funny.
1: So uh, all that stuff. That always I don't know. I, I feel like this movie, like you said, it's got so many classic quotes, but I think part of the reason why they're all so classic is that a million and one people have requoted it or retwisted mm-hmm. it into a comedic thing at some point. Yeah. Uh in our lives. So of all the
0: gin joints in the world.
1: Yeah, that even became a fallout boy song
0: oh <laughs> shit yeah so <laughs> i say that a lot actually when when someone walks in that i i use that one a lot in my real life and most people don't I, get it a lot of well because i hang out with t- friends that aren't into oldie time things like me
1: <laughs> you you're way nicer than me you've got the and all the gym joints to them i think i usually start with like you've got a lot of nerve showing your face <laughs> around me <you." laughs> so if there was a classic parody moment or a classic reference on a TV show or movie or a favorite dress or a favorite dress or a favorite Inger dress Bergman yeah like Kelsey you're so wrong about that dress there's I could such not be a better wrong. one like
0: her ending outfit is amazing like him in the trench coat and her in that with the tilted hats together and it's foggy I mean that's beautiful Um, And trench coats weren't popular, actually, in fashion. It was much more of a military wear, so that was very progressive of them to dress him in the (laughs) trench coat. Um, I read that in my magazine. But... (laughs) Um, yeah you can tell us on Instagram find us at Time underscore podcast or on Facebook just type in beforemytime we will pop up right on the wall DM us be like yo the trench coat was dope but his suit was bitchin or be like I liked the Simpsons parody I agree with you Galaxy. even though that wasn't my choice but I did reference it uh yeah say hey say ho and maybe give us a five star review cause here's looking at you okay